Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War. A genius for war. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and on this episode we will be discussing the genius for war from On War by Clausewitz. But before we get into that, I had a recent game with my buddy TF that was outstanding. It was my first real 40k game using Gene Steeler Cult, and I was nervous. He's had a lot of time to be working on his Blood Angels and getting them up to snuff and knowing their their various ins and outs, their rules, their stratagems, you know, all that sort of thing. He's He's been very comfortable with his army for some time. And of course, you know, Gene Steeler cults are brand spanking new to me. I only recently discovered that I was halfway decent with them in Kill Team. So the prospect of approaching the actual 40k board was, you know, understandably a little, little nerve-wracking. But I made the best list I could with the information that I had and, and kind of my understanding of how the different rules work together. And again, going into it, I was nervous. He had a, a very dreadnought heavy list with a, some serious firepower in it. And of course, you know, dreadnoughts are super punchy to begin with. So I, I had my doubts. I was very concerned from the very get-go, like I think maybe even visibly nervous, which I do, don't usually get. And, you know, I, I, I did not expect it to go that well. I expected it to be a learning experience, I expected it to be uh, something for the vault, like a whole list of things not to do. And instead, it was a fantastic victory. And no one was more surprised than me. I mean, just because I didn't necessarily know that I could win, didn't mean that I wasn't going to go in with the attitude that I was. I wanted to win. I don't shy away from the fight. Even even if it seems hopeless, I'm like, I'll, I will give it the good old army try, as it were. And I'm glad I did, because it worked extremely well. I had a truck with some acolytes, a magus, a uh, ridge runner, and two groups of acolytes, all on the board. And then off-board, I had my patriarch and my whole little brood of gene stealers. Oh, and a kellermorph and a sanctus. So, the first round... I rushed the front. I, I tried to stay in cover. I was going for the different objectives, but the idea was to kind of spread out my front and en engage him in different areas, knowing that like he, I could draw him in just about anywhere. And so he started coming in, and you know I was I was doing pretty well that first round because he had sanguinary guards, so they were on me immediately. Now, by doing pretty well, all my neophytes died real fast. But if y'all know anything about neophytes which are like the one of the base troop choices for the Gene Stealer cult, 
you know they're kind of designed to die fast. You know, fire off a couple mining laser shots and then, yeah, poof. So they did their job, which was screening everything else. The truck that was hauling my Primus and the Acolytes, all with bone cutters. Sto rock cutters, excuse me. Bone cutters, that'd be even more metal. Yeah, they piled out of there and, and made pretty decent work of the Sanguinary Guard. I continue to be impressed by that particular melee weapon and love it. I refer to it as a Primaris Popper, and it makes me very happy. So, you know, that first wave kind of hits and distracts and, and kind of pulls people toward the center of the field. And as he did so, he opened up some space in the back. Now, behind his lead or his big, big boy dreadnought, which was the Redemptor, he had a tech marine and uh, a dude with a big flag that did something I'm not overly familiar with. <laughs> Blood Angel stuff. But I know it was important. And it gave rerolls or invulns or maybe rerolls on the invulns or something along those lines. It was good. And so that first uh, turn that I was able to deep strike, which was turn two, I popped my Keller Morph and my Sanctus up behind him. And they do what they're, what they're designed to do. Now, again, I was heavily doubtful, which is why I put them both in the same place. I did not think that one of them was going to be able to kill the tech brain. I thought I might need both. I was wrong. Because that was the whole point. I wanted that tech marine dead. The ability, the ability that he had to just regenerate points on something that was already so hard to deal damage to, yeah, that just that just couldn't stand. And so I was going after that tech marine, hit it with my Keller Morph, and just blew it away in one firing sequence. I was shocked. I I'd never used a Keller Morph in 40k, so I didn't necessarily viscerally know how well they were gonna do. And yeah, my, uh, my guy did just fine. So the Sanctus then did not have to go after the Tech Marine and instead went after the other fella, the, the big flaggy standard boy. Now, that very next turn, the big Robit, the big Contemptor Dreadnought, turned around, shot my Keller Morph off the table and grabbed the Sanctus and kind of squished him in his big fist. But they d had done their job. They had taken out those soft, fleshy targets, the officers... And after that, I was able to drop in my Gene Stealers and Patriarch and kind of finish the job. And I, again, like I, I achieved that victory and I was surprised. I was green with the army. I, yeah, <laughs> it was, it, but I tried. That's the thing. Like I, I studied the best I could. I acquired as much knowledge about my army as I could before I went into it and Half of it was knowledge, and then half of it was trying to remain present in the moment, not get psyched out by the fact that I was brand spanking new with this army. So, I hope that that is a lesson in, in perseverance, because, like I said, never sell yourself short. Just because it looks bleak doesn't mean it is bleak. Uh, despite what we had learned last week about probabilities, those are, those are just odds, you know? I consistently can make a five-up in Vuln. I don't know why. Statistically, it doesn't make sense. But I can consistently make a 5-up infill. That is against probability. So, yeah, just think about that. Well, without any further ado, I think that that is the most exciting thing that's happened to me in the last couple of weeks. So let's move straight in to our first section on talents and qualities.
When we're talking about a genius for war, what we're really talking about are talents and qualities that lend one the skills to deal with various aspects of war and or war gaming. When we say genius, we're not talking about the more modern usage where it implies a incredible level or capacity for a particular subject. Einstein, for instance, completely revolutionized his field and the fields associated with his field, with his discoveries. Within the modern definition, we would call Einstein a genius. But within the Greek definition and the definition that Clausewitz would have been dealing with, genius means one's particular talents. Where do your particular talents lie? And there is a genius for war just like there is a genius for math. Certainly Einstein possessed a genius under this particular definition. But that doesn't exclude other people for having the genius for mathematics. If that makes any sense. And the genius we're talking about here, or where he was specifically speaking to in this chapter, is the genius required for a general, or, or higher, like a marshal or something along those lines. Somebody who is in charge of a great number of troops and in charge of a great number of responsibilities. But there's a genius that is required for every level of command. A certain set of talents, skills, qualities that make it better or worse for a person being in those positions. Certainly a person can still be in these positions without having the genius. There are plenty of people who study mathematics who are not geniuses at it. They still study it. They can still be quite good at it, but not to the level in which genius might take someone. If we're looking at each different strata of command is requiring a different type of genius, then we're kind of seeing a bunch of different things. The, the, str the strengths and qualities required to be a good uh, line sergeant, for instance, somebody who's in charge of a smaller group of troops and directed toward a singular objective, those talents are going to be different than somebody who's in charge of operational command and in charge of strategic command. Each of these things are going to have strengths that are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but certainly are more developed toward the particular field that they're aiming to. For instance, scholars absolutely have a place when we're talking about military science. Clausewitz, Clausewitz himself was a military scholar, and these folks help develop military theory, develop it into to either new forms or criticize old ideas. That's the whole pur purpose of it. So that genius absolutely applies to military affairs. But you need to have different types of genius in there as well. Otherwise, the army is weak. If it only has the one genius, if everybody has the same talents, then an army is going to be weak. Think about an army of scholars. In theory, we'd be great. We could outthink absolutely any problem, and we would have no issue doing so. When it came to the actual fighting and the grueling and the uh, dealing with the transportation and dealing with all the other things that go into all the different levels of command, no, an army of scholars would not do well. But that's the same way as saying that an army of folks that would fill out uh, a more line-based position would not do well. So a balance is required. A large number of different geniuses make an army work, make an army possible. And if we're thinking about this in terms of wargaming, 
it's also very true. If we're looking at uh, intellectual wargaming, for instance, Warhammer 40k, there is a technique to spamming, you know, a spam army that uses a, a lot of the same type of unit. It used to be far more common in previous editions and far more broken, but it's still a, a fairly modern idea as well. And I would argue that, yeah, those kind of spam armies are good in a lot of situations, but there's going to be some types of army that are just going to be unassailable, where the spam army is not going to have anything to be able to do against it because it is made specifically in a way that counters the, the tactic of the spammer. And so having that well-balanced force that can kind of deal with different tactical situations as they arise and isn't necessarily specified for one exact thing, uh, that allows, of course, more flexibility and also greater usefulness when it comes to being on the field and getting things done. And this is also the same within a Belagarth unit or any other foam fighting society. If everybody does the exact same thing, for instance, let's say the entire unit is spear people. Everybody's got a spear. Well, yeah, if you can keep your enemy at range, much like the, the phalanx, you can do some serious damage. But the spear has some serious weaknesses. Getting in close, for instance, uh, having multiple attackers on multiple sides, the spear works best when supported by other weapons. And so when the spear is used exclusively, it is not as effective. Same thing with archers. Archer, archers being on any particular side is a field-changing event. People have to pay attention if there is an archer on the field. But a team of exclusively archers would sure be devastating at medium to long range, but you know, folks getting in there with a, a helm and a shield would absolutely make short work of that particular unit. And so these different geniuses, these different roles must be fulfilled even within what we do, and even taking a step beyond that. If we're talking about the events that go on or the tournaments that go on, you need people who are organizing them, handling the boards, handling the field, handling the players themselves. There's a lot of logistics that go into any of these things too. And that requires a certain type of genius. So even excluding the actual game portion of it, having a variety of folks is always a good idea. On the idea that diverse talents make an army stronger, a general also has to be flexible in another way, which is to say that a general needs to have an intimate knowledge of state policy. You can't make me see me making the air quotes when I'm over here making air quotes around state policy. And Clausewitz says a general must be a statesman. Now, what he's talking about is being able to appeal to a warlord or a king or a president and deal with everything that goes on with that. For instance, consider the generals in the American Pentagon. They aren't just in charge of military activity across different theaters of war. They are also in charge of various cabinet meetings, uh, intergoings between their subordinates. There's a lot of politics and logistics that go into doing their job and doing it well. That's why only specific people are selected for those positions. And the same thing goes with us. You must know state policy if you're going to be in charge. For instance, in a unit for a foam fighting, or for any, the, any other fighting society for that matter, if one is not intimately familiar with the policies of a given unit, realm, event, what have you, is not familiar with the way you know people do things with the spirit of the unit or the organization, then they're going to have a lot of friction 
working against them just to begin with, not even before they hit the enemy. There's going to be resistance. And so a statesman, as a general, makes things a lot easier and can make things move a lot smoother and actually work. That's the other thing. If, if a person isn't good at politics, isn't good at leadership, and not, we're not just talking on the field leadership, we're also talking being able to relate to people leadership, not going to be doing well. So these commanders, generals as we're calling them, must be able to overcome resistance from their own army and from enemy action. Of course, there's going to be, you know, resistances to fatigue, to danger, to uh, hunger, those sorts of things, even, even in like the present day when we're dealing with physical wargaming. And there's also going to be the same thing when we're at tournaments. There's the friction, there's the resistance to us actually moving forward, the endless other games, the probably lack of sleep, poor diet, all of these sorts of things are resistance even before we meet the enemy. And then, of course, you have the resistance provided by the enemy to keep us from achieving our goal. So two qualities are required to really be effective as a general. Firmness and staunchness. Now, these may sound very similar, but Clausewitz defines them as two separate principles. Firmness is the resistance of the will to a single blow. Let's always talk about that as like a single fight or a single match or something of similar quality. If you can weather, I'm sorry, you can hear the wind in the background. It's, it's making leaves go crazy. So if you hear like crinkle, 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 yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, like that. Anyways, um, firmness is being able to stand up to that kind of resistance, being able to stand firm in, in the case of a, a single hard blow. Staunchness is the ability to withstand a series of those blows. So think about an entire tournament or an entire event. These, this, is, this takes a much different type of ability to overcome resistance. Many people have firmness, but to have staunchness is, is a real difference as to what category of leader one can fall into. Because firmness is fine if we're dealing with, uh, let's say, a line sergeant, somebody who's in charge of a small group of folks. They are only having to deal with the action for a small amount of time. Whereas the folks at the higher echelons of command are maybe not dealing with the action in such an intense or visceral way, but their focus, their intensity is still on that even beyond when the normal unit has retired or is resting. So the staunchness is required for higher levels of command. It's also not a bad quality for a line commander either. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be great there as well. But it's certainly necessary for higher levels of leadership. The ability to withstand stresses, be able to withstand negative input, negative stimuli, defeats for a, a longer period of time. And then the strength that we're able to determine to this also puts forth the energy of the action. And so that energy is directly going up against this resistance to danger and suffering. There's always going to be danger, whether we're fighting against an opponent, we're nervous, we're nervous we're going to lose, you know, we're, we've got these high expectations of ourselves, or it's the physical danger of actually entering the field against a, a combatant, there's going to be that resistance. And so the stronger we are, the firmer we are in our convictions, then that's the more energy that we're bringing to combat that resistance that we're inevitably going to meet. So that's kind of what we're dealing with when we talk about genius. 
the qualities for a leader and the qualities expressed by this idea of genius are also rather specific according to Clausewitz. Now I've got a bunch of fights I want to pick with him, but I'm going to save that till the end. Now he says that there's two qualities that are necessary for combating uncertainty, for instance. That's one of the forms of resistance that we're going to find on the field, the lack of knowledge. Even if we gather together all the information we can on ourselves, on the enemy, on terrain, on the weather, all of these things still do not provide us with absolute certainty. And so to combat this uncertainty, again, these two qualities are required. The first one is Kudel, and the second one is resolution. Now, those of you who were listening back when we were speaking about Frederick the Great will recognize this term, Kudel, and boiled down to a very simple definition, which, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for a real definition of the word, I would recommend that you read it either out of Clausewitz's book or out of Frederick's, Frederick's book, because both of them do a lot better job explaining it at length. But really what it boils down to is the ability to make rapid and precise decisions that are correct. That's the difference. If, if anybody can make a rapid and precise, or it can make a rapid decision, but to make it precise and to make it correct, that is the, the nature of Kudel. And a lot of times it can be taught. Painstakingly, one can learn it. But it's also something that a lot of people just have off the bat. And so that is a good quality to have toward this idea of genius. And then resolution, of course, is the courage against danger and against responsibilities as well, because, you know, courage isn't just on the battlefield. It's also in dealing with other people and with the various levels of leadership, there are also different types of this courage. So for this courage, specifically about leadership, when it comes to responsibility, there is a, a strength of mind and a, a, a quality of self-command that is necessary in order to command others, to inspire them to see you as a leader. Because we have to have the consent of those who are going to govern. I think that the uh, deep dives that we've been demonstrating have kind of led toward this conclusion. But yeah, there's, there's different types of strength when it comes to the mind. And he, he lists out four different types of strength when it comes to the mind or reactions to danger. Now, again, I want to stress that courage against danger and courage in the face of responsibility are, are different things that require different sets of, of strength and firmness, <laughs> firmness and staunchness. And courage in the presence of danger really requires one of two things, either indifference which is, you know, not caring, whether it's a, a natural condition for the person or a, a learned quality, indifference, or impulse. And impulse comes from the positive connotations of patriotism, serving one's uh, community, fighting for some noble ideal. These are impulse as opposed to the indifference. Now, when it comes to responsibility, neither of these things necessarily work in of themselves completely boiled down. So we have these different types of strength of mind, but what we're speaking about specifically is their approach to leadership. So the first one that we're speaking about are those who have little excitability. We all know people like this. People who it is difficult, very difficult, to rouse them to anger or to, to make them laugh uproariously. They are people who are fairly grounded in their emotions. And so these people obviously have a, a boon when it comes to 
uh, what they're trying to accomplish when in leadership. They're not going to be put on tilt as easily. They're not going to be phased as easily as other commanders might be because they are just a solid rock, comfortable in of themselves and able to kind of project that strength into what they are leading, into what they're attempting to, to do there. However, because they are so unmovable, they are also, they are also void of a real manifestation of power. Because they do not really feel that strong of emotion to begin with, there's only so much that they're going to be able to accomplish. So these folks are well situated for middling levels of command, operations, places where one doesn't necessarily have to make a lot of big decisions for a smaller group, but instead needs to be able to keep a, a permanently cool head over matters. Honestly, ambassadors should probably fall into this category. Secondly, we have those who are excitable, but don't overstep, full of feeling, but sober-minded. So these are folks who still experience a, a rush of emotion. They are very different than the first quality because they have this rush of emotion. They absolutely experience stimuli when it comes to reaction. But that being said, they, they kind of keep it hidden. They kind of keep it with a lid on it. So you've got all this intensity that's just boiling inside a person. And again, we all know people like this as well. And these folks have some benefits and some negatives to them. They are easily excited over trifles, which is to say they are eager to, to meet the challenge of smaller uh, tasks or smaller dangers. But when it comes to big, great matters, they're often overwhelmed by it. Because deal, again, you're dealing with these all these complex emotions just swirling inside a person under that pressure. Well, the, the more that's put upon them, the more that internal pressure builds. And so again, they're very eager to embrace these smaller matters and, and quite good at it. But when it comes to these massive responsibilities, they tend to break down gradually. And so these folks are great individually. If you have them in charge of like independent units, think about like cavalry. Cavalry has a specific job and having somebody who is sober-minded, but also excitable, that's a great place for Cav. It's maneuverable. Yeah, it's a good spot. However, not higher levels of command. We don't need people who are at higher levels of command who can be easily emotionally compromised, even in this way. So they have their place as well. Thirdly, we have those who are easily roused and burn violently, but quickly. Yeah. People with a temper, people with emotions that come on suddenly. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be anger. It could be fear. It could be sadness. We're talking about people who feel deeply, viscerally, and it comes out quick, but it also res uh, recedes quickly as well. And so these folks, as is probably assumed, are useful in inferior positions. Now, when Clausewitz uses this term, inferior positions, He's not necessarily demeaning the value of the people or the value of the work. He's just saying it's an inferior, as in, if we're looking at a hierarchy, it's on the bottom end of that hierarchy, inferior positions, but they're not su suited to operational or strategic command. We don't need hotheads being in charge of large operations because that is a good way to collapse an army, a front, a theater, 
all of this. Basically, every single military scholar that we've studied has said, keep a cool head. Do not let yourself be put on tilt. And the folks of this third variety are definitely not that. However, if we're talking about a smaller group that only has to be engaged for a small amount of time, then yeah, this sort of passion is extremely useful. It can inspire, but not for a long period of time. And fourth, we have those who are gradually roused, have slower but more powerful passions. Now, these are folks who will come around to it, but once they get there, they burn with intensity. They have that red-hot heat that precedes the flame. They look perhaps like the first variety, but eventually their passions make them more resemble that third variety. But the problem is they can carry it away from it. The passion at that point is so powerful that it doesn't burn out. You've got somebody who is on octane at this point. And so the real challenge for the folks in this fourth category is to maintain serenity, have that passion, have that drive, but not be compromised by it. Now I will note, Clausewitz didn't say that any of these types of mind are particularly superior to command. Some of them are better suited for lower levels of command, and some of them are better suited for higher levels of command. But that's not to say that there's one of them that is the best. So if you're sitting here listening to this list of traits and you go, oh gosh, you know, I've got these traits that I, that I've read about on here. So obviously, you know, because I'm in this category, I'm not a good leader. No, that's not what he's saying at all. It's just to say that different folks are, are better leaders over different situations. So when we're talking about leadership, let's, let's kind of break down these numbers in terms of physical wargaming, because Obviously, in intellectual wargaming, we have these things as well. We have these different personalities, and they play out on the field. And even if we have one, for instance, if we had this third type, the easily roused burn quickly, if we understand that that's who we are, that that's what we do when we react to external stimuli, we can make it in such a way that we are benefited by it, that we're put into situations where we are suited for our talents and qualities. Because you have these different levels of command, we have the, the tactical level, which is the fight right now. And the tactical level of command requires one to be able to lead over the course of hours. Because a fight lasts for hours, a battle lasts for days, a campaign lasts for weeks, and a war lasts for years. So these are the different levels we're talking about. And again, we're not going to be having these long campaigns down the Shenandoah Valley in terms of what we're doing, but there's still these levels when it comes to leadership. So tactical, again, that's the fight. That's somebody who perhaps is your on-field commander, or maybe just unofficially, it's the person who takes charge, drives the bus, as it were. And this person will probably be different than your quote-unquote operational level commander, which is somebody who is in charge maybe at the realm level or at the local unit level. They're in charge of more than just on-field sort of things, and they have more of a logistical requirement of their talents. And then beyond that, you have folks who are in charge at the national level, you know, folks who are in charge of units that span state borders or are in charge of the national organization of Belagarth, part of the, the board of directors. These different folks are required to have 
a different state of mind than perhaps at the tactical level and vice versa. So again, these different talents, and, and again, they can overlap. Somebody can be a great tactical commander and also be a great operational commander. It's not to say again, that you can only be one or the other, but it's good to understand that just because we fit into a particular strength of mind or a self-command type doesn't mean that it's intrinsically negative. It just means that we need to go where our, our talents and qualities lead us. And again, in terms of intellectual wargaming, it might lead us toward different armies that we're going to play. You know, there's a, a certain talent and quality required to be an orc player, as opposed to Tau, Eldar, Space Marines. They all require a different genius, if you will, in order to play them well. So have a care when it comes to where you want to be and where we want to situate ourselves within that structure. So military genius boiled down by Clausewitz's definition, is searching, not inventive. And so what he means by searching, not inventive, is you look back through the past and you see what other people did well and you modify that to fit your situation. So if we're dealing with uneven sides when it comes to number, we look back at Frederick's works and at his strategies and try to apply them to what we're doing. Running some sort of insurgent, counterinsurgent warfare, well, then we might consult the writings of Abu Bakr Naji and apply his ideas to what we're doing. So searching not inventive is, is what he says military genius is, is required. I've got something for that later. Comprehensive, not specialized. This one I like, especially for higher levels of command. Specialization means that you, of course, are really good at one thing, but it often means that we have neglected other things. And so for higher levels of command, honestly, some level of renaissance man or woman is required because then we can understand these various ideas, these various influences that are coming in to what's going on in the overall picture. A person who is in a higher part of the chain of command who really specializes in logistics, but isn't very good at like leadership for like, like speaking, public speaking, they're not going to be as effective in that role as somebody who combines a lot of those qualities. So comprehensive and not specialized, I absolutely agree with that one. And then a cool head, not a fiery one. We're always looking for that. Even people of that third category we had mentioned, those who are easily roused, would also benefit from understanding that a cool head is a better time for decision-making. A hot head is great for perhaps going into battle once the plan is already in place. But uh, no. When we're making a plan, cool, logical heads prevail. And now I got some fights to pick with old Clausewitz here. Because there were several things he said throughout the course of this chapter that I disagreed with vehemently. The first one, we didn't really go over it in the section itself, but he had said multiple times within this chapter and the ones preceding that people who are from uncivilized cultures cannot possibly have a genius for war. And by uncivilized cultures, he means everybody not European, basically. And from this idea, you would think that Europeans prosecuting their wars would win every single time because of this civilized nature of their warfare. But this has been t shown time and time again to be complete folly. I mean, how many times did, you know, not exactly scholar warrior types from the plains, let's talk Huns, Scythians, Mongols, come and absolutely wreck quote-unquote civilized societies. 
It happened a lot. When the British were first coming into Africa, they were getting rocked by the locals there. It was only when they started playing the different tribes against one another, playing the different nations against one another, that they were able to establish a foothold. Before that, they were, they were not doing well in that area. And those were folks who Clausewitz would have termed uncivilized. Here in the Americas, the Native Americans absolutely gave the colonists and the various settlers and, uh, you know, other invaders that were coming across their country. Every step of the way, they were dogged. And it was only because of various circumstances or help from outside of the continent that they were able to be defeated. Also being divided like the African uh, nations were by various treaties and allegiances with the different powers. So in this way, I completely disagree with this idea of, of uncivilized folks being able to not have genius. Now he does make a concession. He says, of course, these kind of folks can be still good at war. They just aren't going to be as good as somebody from Europe, which again, I disagree with. And I think history does too. One of the other points he made here was that resolution can only come from the intellect. That if a stupid person has quote unquote resolution, then they have it just because they don't know any better. And I would argue, particularly in this day and age, maybe in his day and age when people who didn't come from a higher class were not very well educated and perhaps did not know why they should be there. You know, we're dealing with a lot of conscripts. And so maybe at that time, this may have applied. But at this time, I think anybody can have resolution because we all have access to the same kind of information. Nobody is really making uninformed decisions. People are making decisions based on different information, but these things in of them all can create resolution in high thinking minds and low alike. So again, I disagree with him on that one. And along that same idea, he had said that conviction is the true judge of character. And this is to say a lack of change, a lack of change of self, change of response, change of plan. This is conviction. Of course, in its extreme, it's obstinacy, but he said, this is what he defines conviction as true character. And I would disagree with that too, because not changing based on new information is, it's dumb. <laughs> it's dumb. It flies against everything we're supposed to be as humans, which is adaptive learning creatures. If we come in with a particular idea of how things are to be done and we run up against a wall on it. Well, the definition of insanity is just doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting a different result. So I disagree with him heavily here. Now, should we change our minds every two seconds based on, oh, a leaf fell over here. I'm going to completely alter my battle plan. No, no, it's a triviality. But coming up against legitimate information that needs to be acknowledged and that would need to alter our plan. Well, that's just smart. That's just smart. And then lastly, this idea that he'd said about searching and not inventive. I would say I agree with him in part, but I also want to pick the fight in that inventive is kind of what wins wars. It's the person who's come up with the new technique or the new weapon or the new form of command or, or way of organizing their units that really kind of judges the battlefield. Most of the things that have really won wars and changed the, the course of human history have been inventive, have been the application of something else to a more military-like principle. I mean, gunpowder at first. 
It was like projectile weapons were very inaccurate if they were even, even made. Gunpowder was originally used for fireworks. That's what it was used for, making them pretty, pretty lights in the sky for celebrations. And then slowly it was applied toward military uses. So that's inventive. Even though we're searching for other things, somebody had to be inventive at some point. And so a, a, a commander, I think, should be at least a little inventive. Not every second of every day. Having a new reform and a new way of doing things every single day with a large group can get really tiring. If we're completely switching gears with the way we, we do our army and Warhammer without really taking steps in between, well, yeah, then that's kind of dumb. But if we're kind of looking at the way the meta works, at the way our rules work, at what we've got to, to use, then we can come up with something inventive. But we have to search first. So I kind of agree with them. But I also disagree in that being inventive, coming up with a new strategy, coming up with a new way of approaching the battle or the war, uh, it's probably a good idea. At least that's my opinion. I disagree with Clausewitz. You know, you make your decision on, <laughs> on who you agree with. So these are the talents and qualities that we look for when we say, say that somebody has a genius for war. So to help me talk about some of these talents, qualities, and leadership characteristics is a good friend of mine, Tink. So here with me on this episode to discuss these ideas of courage, combating uncertainty, and uh, the other things that we've covered in this particular episode is a good friend of mine. I, I have known her for years. I have watched her grow as a fighter and as a person, and she started off awesome, and she's just gotten better from there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Tink. Uh, Tink, how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you on. So uh, I understand that you have a fairly extensive wargaming experience. Uh, yes, I started out doing foam fighting, specifically Belagarth. I uh, started out particularly uh, refereeing, marshalling, uh, or heralding, as it's known in the game, and then became heavily involved in more of the combat side of things. And now I am also getting involved in the steel fighting realm, specifically HMB, Historical Medieval Battles, and doing marshalling for them. See, that's awesome. I, I've never done that sort of combat, and there's just a level of hardcore that I just have to respect doing anything like that. It is, it is something to, to witness uh, when I've seen the line streams, but it is a whole nother thing to see face-to-face -face and... With the marshalling side of things, you get to be a little bit closer than the average spectator, and that is a rush, I'll tell you that. No, I dig that. And, uh, I mean, it's cool to watch it on, on just YouTube. I can't imagine what it's like to be right there and, like, hear the crash and, oh, oh that sounds awesome. Yeah. But uh, we're going to sit here and discuss uh, leadership a little bit, because in my observation of you, you are a person of many roles. You have been able to step up and, and succeed in, in leadership in a lot of different ways. And so I think uh, you're going to be a very useful person to, to speak with this about. Now, first off, let's talk about different types of, of mental strength, because there are different types of people in the world who can withstand different types of pressure and who react to stress 
in different ways. Uh, we just discussed four in the in the previous chapter, one being somebody who is just kind of sluggish. You know, they're, they're not quick to anger. They're not quick to much of anything at all. Uh, then you've got people who, you know, they feel, but they, they feel within limits. Like they, they definitely check themselves after a point. You've got those who burn up like a flame. And then you've got those who are a slow roll. They do eventually get to like their passion, but it's a slow burn to get there. Within your observation, which of these do you think is, is more useful at, at, at in leadership in Bellegarth? And I, and I mean uh, at, at more of a middling level, not necessarily like national leadership or, or massive unit leadership, but just sort of what is required to do a good job as a, a sergeant, uh, for lack of a better term. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say, especially, yeah, especially that mid-tier level, it's, it's tricky. It's definitely something that I believe is you know, situational, just as it would be kind of in any, uh, on any tier, mm-hmm. uh, but you do have a level of responsibility. And I would say you are a role model in a sense for a lot of people with your decisions, not only locally, but sometimes believe it or not, you, what's done on a small scale definitely has a national impact. The, the word, the word travels far. So the decisions that are made by mid-tier leadership, you know, on one side of the country can definitely ripple. Uh, But when you have somebody who makes a decision that is rash, you know, so to speak, that that quick burn, uh, you a lot of the times get a a truly emotional reaction that does not end up benefiting the whole, I would say, in the long run. It might maybe, you know, might have a short-term benefit or no benefit at all, uh, but it's. I feel like I've noticed it tends to be detrimental in the long run. Mm-hmm. Uh, that slow burn kind of individual, I feel, tends to uh, still be more beneficial. They have the capacity to have, you know, a the extreme, you know, reaction that could be necessary given the the situation. Uh, ideally, we never come across the situation where there is, you know, bold action that needs to be taken. But if, you know, somebody on that mid-tier level, you know, has a situation that that arises, you know, ideally they are approaching it calm and level-headed. Uh, but it might come to the point where they need to have the capacity to get to that level where they can take an extreme, you know, action or make that extreme decision to handle whatever needs to be done. Well, sure. And different qualities and different talents are required for different levels and for different types of leadership, no doubt. And uh, as a person who, again, I've seen step into a lot of leadership roles, what qualities uh, do you feel that you possess that you bring forward into that situation? Um, I, I would say at the, at the beginning of when I was getting involved with leadership or I would say kind of fell into into leadership. I I guess naturally ended up finding myself in situations where people needed help and I I like helping people and it, it became a natural progression of events and that you know outside of that having the you know desire to help but also being passionate about you know, the game being successful, uh, 
I think initiated, um, I would say, more of a harsh reaction when I was first kind of stepping into leadership roles, which I would say I struggled with a -hmm. little bit. But I seeked mentorship from some of or a lot of the people that I very much respect within the game to learn from them how to have more of that slow or moderated burn and reaction uh, to things. It's it's great to be passionate and and strong and you know truly want to you know do the do the best and and make the right choice uh but you know whether it's you know mid-tier up it you do have a, a level of responsibility that you do have to you know think about when when you do make that decision and i one of the two of the really positive qualities i've seen in you in leadership are initiative and competence now, both of these things are necessary. If somebody just has a lot of initiative, they jump to help or something like that, but they're not competent. They're not really useful in that situation. But if somebody is competent and has no initiative, they also get nothing done. And so you've got this wonderful balance, this this combination of those two traits that I think makes you a fairly excellent leader in these situations. Well, thank you. I, I greatly appreciate that, actually, a, a lot. I I, I I pride myself again, you know, in, in wanting to, you know, be helpful and and be able to make the the wheel go round, you know, so to speak. Um, but I I appreciate uh, also knowing that I'm at least g- good at what I do. <laughs> I see you. I see you. <laughs> so in order to do this, I we a lot of our events for Bellagarth. Uh, can last a long time. We do have weekend events and, and a little shorter one, day events, but a lot of the, the really good ones last upwards of a week. Now, I've seen you take on a leadership role or, or step into one for the course of that whole week. So at this point, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between firmness and staunchness because, you know, firmness is required in a, in a more limited sense, Right. But staunchness, being able to last that entire time, being able to uh, follow through with the whole campaign, if you will, that takes a lot of willpower. Do you have any specific coping mechanisms in order to to give you that staunchness that I've observed? Uh, I would definitely say taking a little little me time, even if it's small. I I tend to take more short breaks, if if that makes sense. Uh, it, they might, you know, might only be two or three, you know, in the course of a day, you know, I'll have, you know, my morning break, you know, usually after, you know, we have checked all of our weapons and made sure, you know, things are safe before we've, you know, opened up the field. I'll cram, you know, some food in my face and take a little time for, for myself, you know, give myself a little pep talk for the day hydrate always have to hydrate that is you know really important whether you're fighting whether you are marshalling whether or not you are doing you know all kinds of really wonderful event coordinator things that we need to help the you know world go around um but that me time is so important uh i again hydration uh, and definitely getting some good food in you definitely helps keep uh keep you going through that week i have tried to, you know, endure, even though short events, you know, on a very, you know, I guess you would call it a, a college all-nighter diet, and that, oh, did sure. not, not, that did not go well. <laughs> did not go well, indeed. Um, but definitely taking care of yourself. There usually, I would say, there usually is always somebody there that can help you tap out, you know, even if it's just for that 10 minutes, 
for you to just, again, go get water, you know, sit for a second out of, out of the, you know, sun. Um, just, you know, looking out for, for you helps get through those, those long stints. Well, sure. And, and I mean, public service is awesome. And, and, and being there for more than just a vacation, being there to, to help aid the experience, while that's awesome, can also be very stressful and, and can definitely wear on the psyche, as you say. And so, yeah, taking those little breaks just to, whew, sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I, I struggled with it. I won't lie to you in the beginning. I definitely was bad about it. I did not take those water breaks. Again, did not take care of myself. It was, I was, I was a, a bad bean to begin with, I'll tell you that. But you learn after a while. Again, you seek mentorship. You get, get a little bit of guidance. And, you know, a little monkey see, monkey do. You, you, see, you watch the, the greats and the OGs, and the, you, learn, you learn a little bit along the way. Sure. Well, that makes sense. So let's talk about events. Throughout the course of an event, you have the plan, and then you have what actually happens. <laughs> because uh, any human endeavor is prone to chaos. And so within any of these systems, there is a, a great deal of uncertainty as to what the future holds, like what kind of interpersonal issues might take place, what kind of logistical issues might take place. What steps do you take in combating that uncertainty? Ah, oh, yes, there's, yeah, there's always many a plan and sometimes none of those plans actually mm, end yep. up working. <laughs> um, I would say, yes, uh, number one that I, that I try to go with is having multiple contingencies and i mean like a through z and maybe you know one through ten you know for a one through ten if we're feeling spicy uh and that is definitely something that i think is beneficial for anybody whether they're whether it's your whether it's your strategy for what you're going to do for an event you know i might come to an event somehow escaping any you know role or responsibility eventually falling into one naturally um but I end up coming into the event with a plan for, you know, I'm going to fight on these days and I'm going to take a break on this day and then I'm going to fight on the remaining days. And then, like you said, then there's what actually ends up happening in right. the event. Uh, and then there's, you know, when you step into a leadership role, there's, okay, you know, I am going to be the herald for this day my plan is to do the, you know, refereeing from this time to this time, and then I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to hand it off to somebody else, and then I'm going to, you know, come back at this time, and then carry on, and that may or may not happen. I may or may not have been on the field entirely all day because, you know, individuals either weren't able to make it, you know, somebody rolled their ankle, you know, again, like you said, things happen. Um, contingency plans are sometimes the best thing you can do. Again, that level head is, is really sometimes the most beneficial thing you can have on, on your shoulders and, and in your pocket, so to speak. And I would also say having a good team oh, yeah. is, is, I would say, is, is probably, a, you know, if not the most important thing, uh, honestly, to have with you is a really good team. If you feel like carrying the weight of your world on your own shoulders again kudos to you mad respect i you know bow to you i've done it you know it's it's not fun <laughs> but you can do it 
if you have a team though and they are like you said competent they have the initiative to show up you know they either take note of wow you know that person's been on the field for a long time you know heralding all of these fights you know marshalling for a couple hours straight i could possibly hop off you know from fighting for a little bit and go and you know switch out with her for a bit give her a break and that i think is really great about some of the groups that we have and some of the i would say individuals who have naturally fallen into some of these positions is just that they have that initiative and 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 competence and having you know all of that pulled together with you know a couple of those backup plans you know, makes for a smoother-ish event. Well, sure. And it, and it definitely it adds to that moral courage in a lot of ways, the idea of uh, being able to face those responsibilities and, and live up to them. Because there's a lot of folks when in the face of responsibility, if, if things are going wrong, will crumble because they don't possess this, this moral courage that, again, is, is kind of responsible for those things. So I want to talk to you about a different type of courage, real quick as well. Because apart from moral courage, we also have courage in the face of danger. And so the danger on the field is a completely different type of courage than, than running uh, and, and having those sorts of things under you and the moral courage it takes to do that. And you're a rather small person and you're on a field with a lot of rather large people who are swinging for the fences. I imagine that it, it takes no small amount of courage in the face of danger to be able to go out there and stare down these these behemoths. But behemoths, yeah, that's a very accurate description to to say the least. Especially for you know somebody sitting at five foot flat, um, everything at that at that at that point is pretty pretty large. Um, but for me, it's it's a little little dash of courage and and a whole lot of trust. Uh, to mm. be completely honest with you, it's it's trust in in myself. And the practice that I have put into training, uh, trust in the marshals on the field that they're going to be, you know, constructing a positive as well as safe environment for us to fight in, uh, as well as trust in my fellow fighter to, you know, yes, they might be quote unquote swinging for the fences, uh, but hopefully, ideally, when they come across me they might you know knock back a notch i have you know come across the you know my my six foot three behemoth you know friend who is a wonderful fighter very skilled at what at what he does he is known for you know walking through people so to speak he's a very mm -hmm. large man um but when it came across to me he is skilled enough in the fighting that he you know has put him you know in the training that he's had to, you know, knock it back a notch. Um, when it comes to the fighters that don't take it back a notch, it's, it's a whole lot of trust in, in what I have uh, put myself through and the training that I have, I have come to have and the, the courage uh, to, you know, stop, you know, fighting when I come across the field that seems to be solely... Um, about a, a test of strength, you know, when the fight becomes less of skill and us as combatants coming together to test our training and our skill and it becomes more of a let's bash, you know, against each other till one side's win. I, you know, 
And in my opinion, I think that is a courageous, you know, choice to take yourself out of combat and mm-hmm. say, you know what, this is not the this is not the type of fighting that I need to put myself through. You know, it'd be great to be out there and having fun with everybody, but I'm gonna, you know, sit a couple out till it till it tones down a bit. Sure. Sure. And, and, and kind of facing down that, that danger, as it were, I mean, it, it exists for all of us, you know, I'm six foot three and I go out there and I'm just as much in danger of getting wrecked as the next person. Um, different types of wrecked, for instance, not being able to breed in the future is fairly common for somebody of my size, but, uh, it's, it's, you know, there's still some danger to it. And w- within this danger, yeah, we have to have motives for going out there and facing it. There has to be a reason that we're on the field uh, and not sitting, watching other people do this this potentially dangerous activity. And so, I mean, there's a, Clausewitz mentions that there's a whole lot of different types of motives for doing this. You've got patriotism, which for us would be like the love of a realm. Uh, you, you've got, um, you know, monetary speaking. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different types of motives for going to war, for going into battle. But what he says... Uh, are the most important are honor and personal glory. And I, I tend to agree with that myself because most of the best fighters are out there to fight. They're there to fight. They're there to make a name for themselves, but it's about the experience is about them. It's not about representing a realm or representing a unit necessarily. Uh, would you find that your motives are in line with this? You have a, a hungering for that personal glory? Um, honestly, it's, I don't, hmm, that's a tough one for me, only because for me, fighting is just fun. It is something that initially I started in very young as a form of survival and in order to get through the day. And it was only later that it became something fun. And that was, you know, very much through my sensei at the time, you know, making the training more fun because he understood the context, you know, of, of why we were, you know, why we were there. And he was like, no, we're gonna, we're gonna make the situation a little bit more beneficial. And that, you know, that route, I think kind of took it away from, you know, I think having it for anybody else and somewhat making it personal. But then when it, you know, joining a game like Bellagarth or even, you know, HMB, then enters a team aspect, which I really didn't have, again, starting with some of the fighting, you know, initially uh, earlier on. And so when it comes to, you know, wargaming, when you have a team, it somewhat forces you out of that personal glory and yes, I've definitely, you know, come across some of those incredible fighters who are truly only about that, that personal glory. And that does push them very far. But I feel that also blinds them to another side of, of combat and a lot of things that you can learn from, you know, seeking glory, you know, for the honor of more than just yourself. Sure. Uh, so I would say, yes, I would you know, seek out honor and glory for myself if I was, you know, solely in the fight for myself. Uh, But right now, you know, I'm in the fight for more than me. I'm in the fight for my unit, my my realm, my family, you know, uh, that to me makes it a lot, a lot bigger than than just me. Sure, sure. But um, in some way, aren't you, are you not trying to bring honor and glory to your organization? 
to to the organization yeah i would say for more of the organization and and less for me you know again those those fighters that we have and and all actually all of our war gaming sports uh, again who who seek that you know more that personal glory and honor are are incredible people but i i feel you know that might have been where i started uh but i think you know now at least over the years it has definitely migrated more towards the glory for my organization and and glory for the team you know as a whole less for myself quote unquote patriotism if you will yeah pa- patriotism for what you know we ha- we represent as a whole sure and i mean Klauswitz talks about that too the the idea of impulse there are, you know there's two different types of people who are are good in conflict and one is, or one is the people who are just indifferent they just they don't care whether it's through habit or through training or whatever. They just don't care. And then you've got the ones who are out there motivated by some sort of positive uh, uh, subject. And and patriotism is definitely one of those. Love of one's country, love of one's unit or, or realm uh, is definitely a strong, powerful motive, too. Yeah, I would say it's it's one of the stronger motives, especially when you have... You know, like you said, a, a a group that you identify with or or belong to, and that and that you have you know a cause to fight for. I dig that. I dig that. And speaking of the the group that you have identified with, we've uh, done reports on the horde before because they are a fascinating installment of the organization, one of the oldest installments that we've got. I, I think it's basically triad horde uh, for the oldest units within within the community, and they've gone through a lot of changes. You know, there's been, there's been people coming in, people going out, and of course, new ideas and, and new levels of leadership that are established. So, of course, at the top, you've got folks like Gorlock, Izareth, who are just kind of, I don't know, God level. I mean, God, Gorlock is God level, let's be honest. <laughs> um, and then you've got down to your, to your, uh, your little snotlings. So, within Horde has a, a rather, a different structure, though. It's not a military structure, um, it's it's very different, you know. It's it's based on this this characterization process, right? What does leadership look like in Horde at these various levels? Like, what does it look like in uh, a field commander, if you will, a tactical commander? Uh, and, and what about like those mid-level operations? And then, what have you seen be successful up at that strategic level too? Yeah, I was gonna say uh, we've got you know some. I guess you use a regional leadership, you know, especially, you know, we've got various pockets of people all over the country. It's an, an incredible unit and it's kind of wonderful that we are this, you know, not only a, a beautiful rainbow of monsters because we're all painted, all very fun colors because that's what we do. But we are also a wonderful group of people who are from all different walks of life. So we bring a lot of different tools uh, mentally as well as, you know, physically. We have different ways of organizing. We have a lot of people who've come in and really helped us organize on the back end of things, Hmm. which is great. You know, we have, you know, you know, conversations and, you know, in discord and a giant group call, which is all fine and good. But if if nobody takes notes and you know we're all we are we're all very busy you know we might only remember certain things so you have you know again having that great team that can come together and you know help us organize things on the back end you know people bring that to the table and and some of those people are in that mid tier you know leadership um, some of those people are more you know I guess lower tier on that regional side of things I would say our commanders would fall in that mid to upper tier leadership, if not 
upper tier, you know, leadership. Those are the people who have, I would say, been kind of voluntold into leadership. They've been those natural leaders. Again, had that initiative, again, had that competence that, that we talked about earlier, where they really stepped into situations with a level head and really just did an amazing job and kept us together and and kept the ball rolling and us on track and those people in my opinion really have a lot of those positive qualities that we've talked about and that level-headedness really uh trying to bring a a number of ideas and, and plans to the table while you know being able to you know withstand any type of turmoil or stress that you know might come up and yes it you know might be a a long event and you might be really tired and you know something you know we might need to you know make a decision for you know whether or not we're going to you know bring up you know a new person within the group and you know well you just muster up that tiniest little bit of energy and and those commanders really do come through for us in that I guess mid to upper tier and that's really successful for us. Sure. Sure. I, and I mean, this is obviously something that Klauswitz stretches too, that a, a calm, level head is always preferable. Even if your passions burn fiercely, logically, we must keep ourselves in a position where we can make good decisions without emotion over-influencing us in those. Oh, that's interesting. And absolutely no group is perfect, but it's it's trying to keep some of those building blocks, I guess, mm-hmm. in the in those in those foundations, you know, in mind and everybody needs a you know, a reminder here and there, you know, but thankfully, you know, when again, like I said, when I have a good team, you know, you remind each other of those things. When you only have that, you know, family unit who will, you know, let you know when, when you you might be messing up a little bit, that's uh I think that's, that also really, you know, helps also aid you in your own personal, you know, journey. I dig that. Uh, and one last question for you real quick, because I want you to weigh in. I, I disagree strongly with Klauswitz on one of his points. Uh, he, he stresses that uh, commanders should be searching, not inventive. And the idea there is because he's all about maxims, looking back into the past and reading books and trying to come up with uh, ideas based on those same ideas, rather than trying to come up with something completely different out of the blue, uh, inventive versus searching. I disagree with him because he says one should not be inventive. Uh, where do you stand on the matter? See, that's, see, that I don't, I can't, yeah, I don't think I could agree with him, you know, in that. I understand the principle of wanting to learn from the past, wanting to improve upon past actions because you know don't want history to repeat itself you know so to speak um but i think you know you know mother nature and necessity you know will you know change and and kind of you know shake things up regardless of whatever plan that you have forward so if you take you know inventive you know creativity off the table i i really feel like you you somewhat you know took away, you know, your not your 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 dominant hand, you know, so to speak. You know, you can you can still get the job done. You might, you know, adapt and, and learn how to again, you know, learn from past mistakes of, you mm-hmm. know, dropping your fork, you know, trying to, you know, feed yourself, but that's why not just have your dominant hand and your non-dominant hand and be, you know, have all the tools that you could possibly have 
you know, again, learn from the past if you need to, but also, you know, think outside the box a little bit and possibly, you know, find a new way to do things. Sure. Now, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I would love to continue this conversation. I've got so many more questions to ask you, but we appear to be out of time. So I want to just thank you again for coming on the show. It has been a, a real pleasure, Tink. It has been absolutely wonderful to be here. Thank you again so much for having me. And I think again, just thank you so much. Well, uh, we're going to move on now to talking about the political bubble that was ready to burst in Europe that directly precipitated the French Revolutionary Wars. In our last section in this episode, we're going to be talking about the spark. That which kind of sparked off the entirety of the French Revolutionary Wars and the wars of the coalitions. So, we've already set the stage for this. We talked about France kind of leading up to this point, the stresses that were placed upon the state and the monarchy, and the way that that kind of toppled down with the storming of the Bastille. We also were speaking about last episode, the similarities between the French and the Austro-Hungarian monarchies and how the Habsburgs had staved off a, f a very similar fate through a series of fortuitous campaigns. The French did not have this, and so they had already crumbled. So our story kind of leads us up to this point. And I know I keep saying that I'm going to get into the war of the First Coalition. I swear I'm getting there. I promise. I appreciate you guys for sticking around, even though a lot of this stuff doesn't have strict military science applications. I assure you that it will matter later on. And much like we've been discussing throughout the course of this entire show, when we're dealing with war gaming and with war, politics can be just as important. Who we know and how we approach the, the given theater that we're operating in is very important. So the politics here absolutely matter, especially because they serve as the prime motivators for the war itself. So we start our section in France after the revolution has already started to kick off. And the other European nations are not really paying attention. For about two years, France is not at all the focus of the international politics. Everybody is concerned with these wars that are going on in the east of Europe between various states and monarchies. The only ones who could possibly have intervened at this early stage were the British. They were right there across the channel. They weren't overly committed. They still had a lot of their military resources to draw upon, especially since they had just gotten out of a series of wars in the Americas and elsewhere in their colonies. They had all kind of withdrawn, and their focus then was, was right where they were. But they did not act, and this was for a couple of reasons. One, they knew that this was kind of the, the way that politics were going. The, the wind was in the sails, as it were. This idea was starting to take root in most places. And so for them to violently oppose the, the National Assembly and the idea of a constitutional monarchy was kind of political suicide. So that was one reason that they didn't go over. Another one, of course, is the destruction of an old enemy. France and England had been at each other's throats for a long time at this point. And it was kind of like the animosity between the Habsburgs and France 
as a whole. So they, they had no desire to preserve that old order, no desire to kind of keep that monarchy and that uh, rivalry in place. And to such an extent that they sent assurances to the National Assembly that they were desiring good relations and had no intention of being aggressive toward the new form of government. So Britain, yeah, they didn't, the UK did not get <laughs> involved early on. And, and, you know, at first it, it seemed like good reason. I mean, even after the, uh, the, the nobles who were fleeing France began to speak of their experiences and call for counter-revolution all across the continent, Europe was slow to respond. You know, a lot of them had a similar reaction to the English in that it was you know, in the periphery, but they, they really didn't care all that much. They didn't think it was that big of a deal. No one really took it seriously. No one think it would go nearly as far as it went. They didn't think it would have the consequences that it did. So things go on in France with very little external support during this time, despite the fact that these nobles who were fleeing the revolution uh, were, were basically calling everybody to arms. So, of course, the new government, or the, the forming, the baby new government that was being formed, every government wants stability. That's, that's basically what every human political system or religious system or any other system is looking to accomplish is stability. And there were two things that worked against that enduring stability here uh, right after the French Revolution. The first one was the continuance of material deprivation. It wasn't that the, the harvest wasn't there. In fact, the, the harvests that during that time were, were quite good, especially compared with the ones before. There was just quite a bit of incompetence managing getting all that food everywhere because you had folks in charge who had never been in charge <laughs> of that sort of thing. But this, uh, this lack of, of food, of you know, your basics, the new government did not want to admit that they were decently incompetent at this, uh, at least at this stage of, of development. And so they blamed the exterior. They blamed the counter-revolutionaries. Oh, of course, it's all the nobles and they're, and they're meddling. They're just trying to mess with the revolution. Be strong, brothers. Be strong. And this leads to paranoia, as, as we'll, we'll kind of talk about later. And the second issue was that the National Assembly kind of shot itself in the foot a couple of times. It, it was saying things and putting out pamphlets with motives like sovereignty rests with the nation or the will of the nation is always legal, especially since they were defining the nation as the people. The message that was kind of being sent there was clear, which is that the will of the people was always legal and the ability to govern themselves and the ability to say everything that they wanted, well, that sovereignty rested with the individuals within the nation. And so you had a whole lot of folks who were clamoring for attention. You had a whole lot of different political parties who were able to operate very strongly and without a whole lot of restraint. And the political culture that resulted from this was radical, which is to say very, very leftist in this particular regard. It was abstract. So we're talking about ideas that don't necessarily play out in reality. Remember, Clausewitz cautions us from assuming that abstracts are going to work all the time in reality. So you had some, some abstract, abstract principles that were not uh, going to work. It was also intensely intolerant 
You know, if you had one group like the Jacobins, for instance, they were in, in very intolerant of other ways of thinking, even within these small specialized circles with, with folks who were, had a lot in common with them. They became highly intolerant of everyone else. And, and it's not just within the state itself, between the different political parties and individuals, but we're also talking about other nations, very intolerant of folks from other places. And then, of course, there was this idea of collectivist. You know, people kind of closing themselves off from the greater government and kind of forming their own little mini-state, as it were. For, and a lot of the, the provinces, a lot of the, the little states that did make up France were talking about doing their own thing. Why not? Revolution, baby. And during this whole time, there already started to be a heavy use of the word traitor was applied to those who were in charge in the National Assembly, in the monarchy. It was applied toward rivals from varying political parties. The word traitor started to become very common. And for those of us who know what happened later in this revolution, that's an ominous thing at this point. In fact, these killings that I'm alluding to uh, began with a, a few of the folks who were perceived to be in charge of all the ales of France. For instance, one of these was the guy that they attributed to the famine. He was the architect of the famine, Joseph-Francois Foulon de Douai. I'm sorry to our French listeners. I'm truly sorry. And so he, again, he, he was uh, one of the ministers that was in charge of food and logistics. And so he was one of the first executed. And when I say executed, that is really putting it mildly. Because and again, I'm not going to go into specifics here because I want this to appeal to a large audience, but yeah, go ahead and look it up yourself. It's grisly. His body was torn apart and desecrated. And by desecrated, I mean treated irreverently. Head paraded around. Sorry, not getting into specifics, but yeah, literally torn apart and desecrated in just about every way you can imagine. And prints were circulating at the time. Again, the National Assembly did nothing to deter this sort of behavior, but instead said, this is how traitors are punished. Remember, traitors being thrown around a lot. That word is very common. And this is how traitors are punished. Again, rather ominous for what is to come. But the National Assembly was moved to Paris, which they felt was a more relevant location, or at least the people felt was a more relevant location, and specifically into the Manège, which is a large writing school. So this made it more like a stadium than a debate chamber, because the debate chamber that the National Assembly was working with before was rather exclusive. There wasn't a whole lot of people who weren't directly involved in the legislative process who were inside the building or inside the chamber itself. It was very much like our congressional debate chambers, where you have the majority of the chamber filled up by the delegates from the various areas. And there is a small gallery, but it's not made to support, you know, hundreds or thousands of people. And so it makes for a more intimate atmosphere and people can say what they need to say and kind of have their fair turn to say it. But in this sort of situation, it got unruly really quick. And leaders came to understand that the crowd, the mob, responded to pageantry, responded to fife and drum and dancing and bright colors and woo. And this pageantry turned it into one long political rally. Once people started to realize that the mob wanted to be entertained 
by the political process, they use that to their advantage and to the disadvantage of the state as a whole. Some of the rising ideals during this time were rants, for instance, about the family compact. And what this idea meant was, you know, if my brother is married to your sister whose cousin's aunt is going to war, then by these bonds of marriage, these various states would get involved. And so one of the, the ideals that was being touted during this time was the fact that they wanted to abolish the family compact, have everything solely based on the will of the nation, and said that we wouldn't have these sorts of entangling alliances again if a nation was built on secular principles that were based on national sovereignty and not on a monarchy or religion. I know Clausewitz wasn't a psychic, but World War I would beg to differ on that one, but we'll get into that at some other point. That was one of the aims that they had with this, though, one of those abstract ideals. And of course, there was a whole lot of Anglophobia, which is to say fear of the English. They had long been at war, and France was technically weak right now, still sorting out its its leadership, still sorting out exactly how it was going to look going forward. And so there's a lot of fear that England was going to capitalize on this and do some invading. And there was just general xenophobia in, in particular. Of course, the Habsburgs were, were not very well thought of at this point either, despite the fact that Marie Antoinette, or maybe slightly contributed to the fact that Marie Antoinette came from the Habsburgs. So there's a lot of fear in that direction as well. And of course, to the north, the, the, in the German states that the a lot of the nobles had fled to. And so this meant that power began to shift. Power began to shift from the representatives that were elected to the National Assembly to the mob. And this was done because of demagogues. You had folks who were using this to their own end, who wanted to develop their own party or their own ideology and have folks follow it. And it was done here. It was done with flamboyant speeches, pageantry, Encourage, you know, for, for our consideration, it would be less like a congressional meeting and more like a concert. And a lot of these things that were putting into place also started to shift the ability of the external world to ignore what was going on in France. And a lot of these things came from, again, the, the power of this mob and the encouragement that they gave to various ideas. And one of those ideas was to make the clergy swear an oath to the civil constitution. And that was a big deal because the clergy was supposed to be separate from the political intrigues of Europe. And <laughs> I know that's a laughable concept. The history of the, the Roman Catholic Church has been involved with the politics of Europe. That's, yeah, that's European history for a good portion of it. So, but the idea was that it existed separate from that the priests were loyal, not first to the monarchy, but first to the Pope, to the, to the seat of St. Peter and not to the crown of some king. And so by making them swear an oath of loyalty to the civil constitution, it was breaking that tie. It was saying that they needed to be more loyal to France than they were to their faith, than they were to the, the overall or, uh, overarching community that is Roman Catholicism. And the Pope condemns this and starts to advocate against this particular form of state. Now, these German border states uh, on the French border, where these a lot of these nobles were starting to stream into, 
the Germans did not do anything to deter them from starting to organize military units, either through conscription or through mercenaries. They were pulling together these, these armed units to attempt counter-revolutionary activities. And of course, this only increased the paranoia that was going on in the streets. And honestly, things may not have gotten worse. Again, playing the what-if game with history is a, a rather futile endeavor. But in terms of the way that the nobles and the monarchy specifically were treated, things could have gone much differently. But Louis XVI was not playing this game well. I mean, Marie Antoinette was, was known as the powerhouse of that relationship. She was the one who was far more politically savvy. And he was reluctant and delayed signing the civil constitution. He, he was vacant in his duties as the constitutional monarch. And he continued a close relationship with external clergy like the Pope. One of the big things that, that put a, a hit to him was after his regular confessor, and, and that's like a, a religious therapist, uh, his confessor had to take the oath of loyalty, he stopped seeing him. So that was already, that was a eyebrow raiser for a lot of the revolutionaries. And then when he was really labeled an enemy of the revolution was when he attempted to escape, when he attempted to flee the state and abdicate his position and, and kind of show that he wasn't in favor of the revolution, that's when things started to go really hairy for the royal family. And, and that's saying that after these years of, of basically imprisonment and a hostage situation, that it got worse. It got much worse. The National Assembly, however, during this time was attempting to assert itself as the valid legal body of the nation itself. Remember that there's the monopoly on violence that a state must enjoy and a monopoly on policy that a state must enjoy. And so even after the revolution, there were crowds gathered in the streets who were, who were still, you know, rioting, were still attending various political rallies. There was, there was a lot of disorder. And so to kind of preserve that order, they declared martial law and at one point fired into a crowd to make them dissipate. Now the number of deaths was relatively small. There was only a few people killed, but the message was very clear and it symbolically demonstrated the heavy divisions between the National Assembly and the masses, between the leaders and the consent of the people who they supposedly ruled. And this was seized upon by radical politicians, folks who were much far left than the National Assembly. And they, they used this to promote fervor and, and to ignite the passion of the nation to their own interests. Like I said, any, any human society that is devoid of politics is a graveyard. That's the only one. And so everybody was seeking to, to capitalize on their fortunes or to promote their particular, their branch, their ideas concerning this. And this rise in radical ideals and the noise it was making and the threats that were flying out from the, the, the new French state started to shift the attention of the other European powers. Now, part of this was that the, the wars that I spoke of in the East, for instance, with the Turks and the Russians, with the Swedes, with the Prussians, with the, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of conflict going on there in Eastern Europe. And so that begins to subside. 
those wars are, are tying up and coming to an end and everybody's starting to look to the West where there's a lot that wasn't there before. When the revolution first started kicking off, it was a change of the regime. You know, you still had a constitutional monarchy, the National Assembly, everything was orderly and it appeared to be going to something that was stable and perhaps might endure. But as these two years that we spoke of kind of wore on, it became apparent that the ideas were shifting to the more and more radical and the more and more paranoid. And so, yeah, Europe starts to pay a lot of attention right now, especially at the saber rattling that was occurring. Because the hawks, which are people who are very pro-war, were using the, the hatred of the English and the Austrian. Remember, these folks, they had been at war for a long time. The, the Habsburgs were no friends to the French people. They resented heavily the fact that France had made peace with the Habsburgs, the, the, fan, the fact that Louis XVI was married to a Habsburg. All of that was abhorrent to the French people at that time. And so that hatred was easy, easily capitalized. It was easily used to promote war. The same thing with the English. The French and the English had been in each other's throats and doing proxy wars the whole time. You know, the French-Indian wars, the Seven Years' War, the war in the American colonies, the American Civil War. There were, there were competing interests in that one. The various different wars in the colonies, French and Englishmen alike had hated each other for a long, long period of time. And so that fear was also stoked. How do we defend ourselves? How do we defend ourselves from the English? How do we defend ourselves from the Hungarians and the, and the Habsburgs and the danged old Germans and the expats and all these different fears and all these different enemies? It was easy to manipulate people who were living in this kind of fear, this kind of paranoia. And of course, they instilled a sense of pride. War must be undertaken because of pride. Your national identity is at stake. Are you not proud of the new secular state? Are you not willing to go and fight for it? And pride is, I mean, that's something that's required for any war. Nobody enters into war without having pride unless they're being paid to. Mercenaries are well known to not be as an effective fighting force as an army of volunteers. An army of people who want to be there are motivated by patriotism. It's one of the strongest forces of pride that can exist on the battlefield. And this pride was also manipulated. The pride of one's country was manipulated to advocate for war and to promote these selfish interests. And lastly, there was a, a false confidence that was instilled in the French people. Remember that their army was still in the process of reformation itself. And that there was a lot of issues that needed to be addressed, not just in terms of a bloated officer corps, but in terms of equipment, in terms of drill, in terms of all, you know, all these things had kind of gone by the wayside. And we're still in the process of being reformed to some sort of unified whole. But there was a false confidence instilled. Of course, we're going to triumph over the other regimes. Of course, the, the proud army is going to go out against those who still serve their monarchy, those who are bound by their chains to these ancient regimes. They, of course, will fall just because we look at them, because the force of our will is so strong. We'll be able to crush 
any of the other countries. No problem. When again, you know, France, they weren't the worst army in the world, but they were not up to snuff. They were not up to what they were taking on, to what these hawks were threatening and advocating for. And so these things, the hatred, the pride, and the false confidence were used, again, to manipulate the French people into being motivated to something that was not necessarily in their interests. And again, this saber-rattling drew attention. People tend to, when you sit there and you're talking war and, and you know, we're, we're planning on crossing borders and dealing with various issues, folks start to perk up right about then. And the Habsburgs did threaten direct war against the French if they dared to cross the German border to deal with those counter-revolutionaries that we were talking about who were just kind of hanging out there. And this, this accomplished the exact opposite of what they wanted it to. Instead of making people take notice and take kind of, you know, they check themselves. You're like, oh my gosh, yeah, what are we talking about? You know, we're, we're trying to provoke war and it's going to be all over the place. It's not just going to be with this one little area where we're basically inviting everybody to come at us. And, you know, that kind of sobering thought that makes people more reasonable to deal with. No, 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 no. Again, the French people were already whipped up into a frenzy of fear and paranoia and anger and hatred. And so this threat, this direct external threat was exactly the wrong thing <laughs> for this for this situation because then of course it was right there it wasn't an abstract anymore it wasn't you know the boogeymen are coming to get you it was like look they said they said they were coming to get us straight up and the the Brissetins in particular they were a, a group a very prominent group of these hawks they seized the opportunity and started to galvanize this this war spirit and really build it up to the frenzy even Robespierre and Rob, Robespierre is not a person who's very highly regarded by most historians and by most people who read history. But even he warned against going to war too early, especially at this delicate stage in the formation of, of the nation, the national politics, national identity, that this would inevitably lead to a military dictatorship, which was discounted, of course. France, the now nation of you know, fraternity, equality, and love, you know, brotherly love and confidence, this, they couldn't be made into a dictatorship. They had just thrown off the yoke of, of individuals making decisions for the people. How could they ever become a military dictatorship? <clears throat> Napoleon, excuse me. So, the ground was set. And this, hopefully, unless I find another tangent to go off on, which we both know is very likely... We'll be moving on to the, the wars in which this kind of leads to. Because, you know, you have the revolution. You have the other things taking place in Europe. And then they start to understand that France isn't just having issues internally. It's about to have issues externally. And those are going to have consequences. And a lot of this more extreme radical thought was also going to have consequences. Because those pamphlets, those books and writings were going to get out. And other folks were going to read them. Folks in England were going to read them. In Prussia, in Sweden. All these different people were going to have to deal with the information and misinformation. Because that's one of the other big things that was taking place here. It wasn't that people were just being fed the truth and the absolute truth. Oh, no, no, no. They were being told of plots everywhere. 
There are nobles trying to steal your children. They hide under your bed and go bump in the night. I mean, I mean, the conspiracy theories flying around at this particular time were nuts. I mean, you would have had to be either an idiot or somebody who was ripped up and whipped up into a paranoid frenzy by a hostile political environment to believe. Because it's not just stupid people who believe strange things and can be taken in by bizarre and potentially dangerous causes. Anybody can. One of the things I studied in, in school was the sociology of alternative religions. And overwhelmingly, because you'd think, you know, you're studying a cult, you'd think there'd be stupid people that were gullible enough to get conned into it, right? No. Intelligent people were shown to be just as likely, if not more likely, to be conned into cults because their logic could be turned against them. Especially in a, ter in a place of grief, in a place of sorrow or confusion or fear or anger, which is what we were dealing with here. So all of these factors led to a particularly volatile war and a particularly volatile period of time in Europe. And I know I've been going really deep into this section. We've been looking at a whole lot of backstory going into this. But in my defense, I feel in order to do this particular string of concepts, the particular string of conflicts, justice, we kind of need to look at these these conditions that existed beforehand, because only through understanding these conditions can we really understand the conflict itself. And a lot of these different, it wasn't just this period of time that had this complexity. And hopefully in the future, I'll be able to do some more of these deep dives. I enjoy them. But I mean, if we're talking about the warring states period in China, if we're talking about the wars between the African nations and most of the wars in Europe, you had very complicated political issues that were going on at the same time. Demonstrating the points that are being made in these books we're reading. So, next time around, we will be talking about something related to the French Revolutionary Wars. It, it'll be sequential, it'll be topical, but I cannot tell you exactly what it is now. Tune in next episode to find out. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm -hmm.